Our Old Testament lesson today is taken from the book of Exodus in chapter 34. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke with them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord, he would take the veil off until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, the Israelites would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining. And Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with God. Our gospel lesson is of another mountaintop experience, but before I read from God's holy word, please pray with me. O oh God of mountaintop experiences and God of our companion in the dark valley, we pray that you will shine your light upon us as we seek to know your will. Silence in us any voice but yours, that we might experience your truth in reading and in hearing, and that we might be faithful followers of your Son, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In the past few weeks, we've heard Jesus' Sermon on the Plain as told to us by the Gospel of Luke. In this Beatitudes, he offers blessings and woes, followed by very challenging teachings to love enemies. After speaking to large crowds, then Jesus speaks to his close disciples and he asks them the question, who do you say that I am? Getting some very um, ill-prepared responses, Jesus then follows into a lengthy discourse of his impending death and resurrection, and he follows that with the caution of, I quote, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is shocking news, and it's a reality check for those that have been following Jesus. It's as if he's asking them, do you really have any idea what you're getting yourself into? Our reading immediately follows this discourse, so listen for God's word as I read from Luke chapter 9. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. They appeared in glory and were speaking of Jesus' departure, which he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But Peter really didn't know what he was saying. 
as he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. And then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, the chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found to be alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one of what they had seen. Here ends our reading. I'm about to tell a story of my experience on my parents' farm, and I need to be really careful. In the other services, I transposed sheep and steer, and it really matters that I say sheep when I mean sheep and steer when I mean steer, and I have a lot more sheep stories than I do stories of longhorn steers. So bear with me. When my parents tended an orchard in Central California, they had an animal menagerie of cows and chickens, sheep, barn cats, and needless to say, a few kittens every now and then, owls, various field critters called the field home, and of course, they had a dog. Unbeknownst to me, their neighbor pastured longhorn steers along the side of their common fence. One afternoon when I was on my hands and knees cleaning irrigation filters, I felt the ground shake. It was California. I hate earthquakes. I hate earthquakes, only instead I looked up to see the steers charge the fence with such speed I was sure they were going to come right through it, thundering over me. My dad was a witness to this whole episode and got such a tickle, and he said, Oh, honey, they're just curious. They want to come say hello and meet you as the cows were then chewing grass and I was truly gasping for breath after really running the entire length of the field. A longhorn steer can weigh up to 2,500 pounds with horns that measure nine feet and obviously at my height I can't come to a nine foot span. Now those steers were absolutely not that big, I know that, but in my mind's eye they were bigger than that because I was so terrified. Their fierce appearance and bodily strength overwhelmed me, as it has people throughout the ages. So with this farm experience, if you were to ask me to cast an image of power to worship as an idol, it would not be one of my dad's chickens or even the ram with the graceful curved horns. It would be a bull with iron-like horns. That's what people have done. Religions throughout the ancient Near East cast bulls as idols to worship. And it's very pertinent that I tell this because of our story today from Exodus. Because at the time of the Exodus, the Egyptians absolutely worshipped bulls. The Egyptians tried to appease them with sacrifices to ward off the danger. And very importantly, they sought to understand and be animated by that same power that gave those bulls such heft and ferociousness and life. That's what they wanted. So we have a history of raging bulls, horns of breath. They are symbols that adorn our human history of recognizing that there is a power beyond human imagination. Now before Cecil B. DeMille's 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments, and I have to admit I was surprised that it's that old. 1956, The Ten Commandments, etched into our collective memories that Moses must look like Charlton Heston. Before that movie, though, medieval and ancient artists cast Moses in a very consistent but different light with characteristics based upon the story that we heard today. The story from Exodus occurs after some of the Israelites' most glaring failures. If we recall, Moses has led the people out of Egyptian bondage towards the land promised to them by God, 
This is truly a journey towards their salvation. While they were in the desert, Moses met God on Mount Sinai for further instructions. Moses was with God away from the people for 40 days, six long weeks. Foundering without a leader and feeling fragile against the terrors of the unknown, they were compelled to reclaim something familiar for security. So why not depict something to worship that symbolized power? They created, and we all know this story, they created a golden calf. It's what the Egyptians would have had. When Moses descended the mountain, he became enraged at their idol worship. He threw the tablets containing God's commands at them, breaking the stones into so many pieces. Arguments ensued, accusations. Even God loses God's temper and calls the Israelites, I quote, a bunch of stiff-necked people, and God stomps away angry. But since they had come so far, they tried again. Moses ascends Mount Sinai for the second time to receive God's covenant, and this time Moses hear God say, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the promise that precedes everything. New tablets are etched from this ethos of God's grace, and despite flagrant disobedience by the Israelites, God loves them and claims them still. When Moses comes down off the mountain, you might expect the focus would be on the tablets, what they say and mean, but it's not. Their focus is on the light that's beaming from Moses' face. If we remember in Genesis, the first chapter of Scripture, the third verse, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated light from darkness. Light is the very first thing God creates even before the sun and the moon and the stars. God's sturdy, enduring light on the mountain took root in Moses' very being. Of course Moses descends with his face shining from this power. Now the Hebrew word that the story writer uses to describe the light emitted from his face is not a fragile light, as one could turn on or off with a light switch or snuff out from a candle. The story writer describes Moses' shining face with the root word for horn. The light protrudes from his being, appearing as fierce as horns. It's as if Moses and God were saying to the people, you want horns? You've got strength in this. You've got a light that lives that no one can ever extinguish. Moses' shining face makes it clear that God's light is speaking through him. The people not only hear the word spoken, they can absolutely see it standing before them. God's light amongst the people by virtue of the covenant, this light will order their personal transfiguration in body and in soul. The Israelites receive and preserve this word of law and love, and the laws, the laws always matter. Love God, honor the Sabbath, respect the lives of others, and the light from that time continues to shine on, and it indicates the laws are founded on God's love that creates and always recreates new life. So Charlton Heston might be the image that we conjure of Moses. But medieval artists drew Moses with 
spikes protruding from his head. If you look at woodcuts from the Reformation, it kind of looks like the Statue of Liberty standing as a, a light against the terrors that might consume them. Michelangelo, in his fabulous sculpture of Moses, in that sculpture, Moses has horns protruding from his head. Some might think it looks like the devil, and it's the exact opposite. Moses represents the light of God that shines. And even more recently, when Marc Chagall continues to paint Moses, he does so with a conception of light just spiking out of his head. It's anchored into who he is and all of what he says to people. It's a fierce, strong light. So today we mark Transfiguration Sunday, and it's with another mountaintop experience of God's light. Transfiguration is the pinnacle of the season of Epiphany. And if we remember back, Epiphany begins with the light shining from Christ's birth. And the transfiguration of Jesus is a hinge that opens the door to Lent and Jesus' journey towards the cross, which we will mark this week with Ash Wednesday. Transfiguration is as if we were to be reminded that we are going to journey through a dark valley of Lent, and we are to remember that God's light will meet us at the end and will always prevail. Jesus' ministry had been of teaching and healing, drawing people to receive a word of hope against the powers of the world. As Jesus prepared to make his final trek towards Jerusalem, he spoke increasingly about suffering, betrayal, death, and he got to the words resurrection, but by that time his disciples were clueless and they were lost in a fog of misunderstanding. Since Jesus' words seem to fail, he takes a few of the disciples to see with their own eyes what he's describing. The story of Peter, James, and John witnessing Jesus ascend a mountain to pray, confer with Moses and Elijah, turn dazzling white, and then hear God say, this is my son, listen to him. All of this opens their eyes to see Jesus' glory. But this story can only be described as a mystery. It was a mystery for them, and it contains a mystery for us today. But rather than try to describe it or deconstruct it, we can say that this is a mystery. It eludes our full comprehension, but at the same time, it draws us to understand. It draws us to understand more about Jesus, and in doing so, it will draw us to understand more about ourselves and our lives. In the moment of the transfiguration, Jesus doesn't shame his form, his shape, or his hue, but his luminescence does change the disciples' perception of his being. Jesus gives the disciples the gift of seeing him as God sees him. Jesus reflects God and shows himself to be the incarnation of light and love. Coming down off the mountain, those disciples were still speechless, but in a very different sense. They were speechless from an understanding that wasn't intellectual, but it was visceral. They were captivated by that light. They now know that Jesus is God's son who will bring about a new way for salvation. They are compelled to follow this man as he descends the mountain into the hands of those who will destroy him and into death. And it is then that they will witness God's new morning light that has existed since the very beginning. And it's at that time they will begin to understand. 
Now, we all hunger for that kind of transformation, don't we? Theologian Rudolf Ott says that we are both drawn to God and yet terrified of holy encounters. Deep inside, even among skeptical, is a yearning, though, for sacred significance. We want something or someone to draw us to goodness, and then we want to be a part of this goodness so that our face literally radiates. We want something or someone who will leave us shining, shimmering, and beaming transcendent. This is possible. This is what our transfiguration is all about. In Lent, we are invited to honestly face our failings, name those small gods that consume our devotion but always leave us empty, uncover the hurts we have felt or imposed on someone else, and in doing so, we will be absolutely vulnerable, stripping away those burdens as well as the masks. But it's at such times of humility that God's light will fill us. Grace is fierce and it's strong and it penetrates right into the heart of each of us. This is the task before us. In this Lent, we are to allow God's light to take hold in our life, to guide us bravely through the dark valleys, to live in love and faith. And we are to be so bold that at the end, we can let God's shine light shine from our face as if we too have horns of light anchored into ourselves that no one can ever take away. May it be so. Amen.